This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. Your eyes on the times, you walk ready to speak up. But with so many problems, you're exhausted trying to keep up. This is the Church Politics Podcast, where you can get political commentary from a biblical worldview. We're not trying to be conservative or progressive. We're trying to be Christian in the public square. And I'm black as heaven. I'm made in God's image. Nobody can change my settings. Hey man, cut off my knees and put an end to my search. It's easy to sell your soul when you don't know what it's worth. Which is no good, Ann Camp. You're listening to the Ann Campaign's Church Politics Podcast with Justin Gibney, a.k.a. Bishop Cooper's grandson, and the Windy City representative, the baddest brother above the Mason-Dixon line, my play cousin, the right reverend, Christopher Butler. Well, actually, and I hesitate to say this because I don't want y'all to just cut out and not listen to the whole episode. I'm guessing y'all that are watching on YouTube already see it. Uh, unfortunately, Chris is not with us today. Now, he hasn't gone anywhere. He's definitely coming back, but he's not here today. But before you go, quickly, just, just hear me out. Before you go, I think this is still going to be a quality episode, so I am going to ask you to stick with me. It's not the same without Chris, but I do think I can handle it and, and give you something that's worthwhile. So just hold on. Just give me a chance. Hear me out. We know we all love Chris. He'll be back just taking a vacation. Uh, but just hold on and listen to me quickly. I'm going to make it worth your while. Just give me a chance. So show me some grace, all right? We know you didn't just come here to hear me, but I want to ask y'all to to help me out for today, all right? Um, And let me start this conversation off about something that I've been really enjoying as of late. And I kind of want to take the chance to ask our audience if they're into this too. Because it's something that's taken up more time in my life, something that I I do with my family that I've really been enjoying. But if I'm going to talk about it, I need to start talking about it, giving a shout out to my uh, my good friend, Danny Warfel, for putting me on this Uh, because he did give me the heads up. And I just got started, but I'm really enjoying it. And that thing is pickleball. Pickleball is like, as I understand it, one of the fastest growing sports in America. Kind of like tennis, kind of like ping pong, you know, a little bit of Batman, all all that stuff put together. You can look it up on YouTube and check it out what it's all about. But it is really fun. It's accessible. You can play it with family members. Uh, You can be very competitive, but it's not so hard that it's going to take you, you know, like golf, you know, 20 years to, to learn it and get good at it. Right. So I've really been enjoying it. And I want y'all to shout us out. So I want y'all to hit us up on our Patreon. I want y'all to hit us up on Instagram or Twitter or however you, you know, interact with the end campaign and let us know as part of the church politics audience, if you're into pickleball, I want to get a feeling for how many people have already gotten into this sport because I enjoy it. I think a lot of you will enjoy it. Great workout. I mean, you can, you can burn some serious calories just within an hour, hour and a half of playing check it out. I think you, I think you'll like it. And if you already play again, I'm just asking you to give us a little shout out. Let us know you're there. Let us know you're getting into it. 
I'm gonna try to get Chris into it. Um, I don't think he's played yet, but that'll be our goal. Let's get Chris into it. Let's get the family into it. I think uh, I think it'll be fun. Uh, before we get into the, today's episode, though, we got to go over some stuff. I really want y'all because we're about to come out with the fourth and fifth episode. I really want y'all to check out the Invisible Institution newsletter, uh, which is about to come out, and the How I Got Over docu-series. The How I Got Over docu-series, as I said before, is about the role that the authority of Scripture played in the Black church, in the history of the, in the establishment of the Black church, and the Black church's art and music and its social action, all those things. Now, when I say the authority of Scripture, what I mean is a true belief in what the Bible says, right? So you have what I consider, you know, Orthodox Christians who believe what the Bible says. That's who we are. We believe what the Bible says uh, within its, you know, within its context. Um, and then you have folks who are like, yeah, you know, it's, it's a nice story. You know, Jesus sounded cool, but I don't necessarily believe in all that divinity and all that. That's a choice you make, I guess. But when you look at the history of the black church and, and what I think Dr. Esau Macaulay would, would call the primary stream of the black church, because the black church is not a monolith. It was that belief in the authority of scripture that really had a major uh, impact again on our social action, on our art and so on. So check out that docu-series. We put a lot of work into it. You'll see folks like, uh, like uh, the right Reverend, you'll see uh, Dr. CJ uh, Rhodes, a lot of people, Lisa Fields, Esau Macaulay, Vince Bantu, a lot of folks that y'all might be familiar with or need to get familiar with in that docu-series. So check that out. Now, as always, we want to give a shout out to our sponsor, the Fetzer Institute, for supporting us in what we do and how we do it. Also want to give a shout out to all those folks who are patrons of ours on patreon.com slash church politics. Look, this content takes time. This content takes resources. You want to be a part of this movement. You appreciate what we do. Not only do we want you to spread the word to your friends and family, which many of you been, have been doing, and that's really the only way that the word spreads for us right now, but we want you to, to give. Uh, we want you to become a part of this and help us put more content out uh, and, and do more. So please consider doing that. Thank you to those who already do that. Just know that there are premium episodes that come out for people who give on Patreon. So if you give, you'll hear some conversations that you're not going to hear uh, outside of the, the premium feed. So check it out for real. But you know what it is. Uh, grab your Bible, get your mind right, and prepare to think not like a Republican, not like a Democrat, but to think like a Christian. And part of thinking like a Christian is understanding and reading the Bible. So I want to start with some Bible, if you don't mind. And we will start at Acts 14, 16 through 17. Acts 14, 16 through 17. And it reads, In the past, he let all nations go their own way. Yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops from, uh, for, uh, in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. Acts 14, verses 16 through 17, that scripture 
gives us a picture of God's common grace. Common grace is a theological concept concerning how God gives good things to all humanity, gives some good things to all humanity, Christians and non-Christians alike. This allows all of us to experience good and goodness and to do good. Non-believers are capable, and we talked about this before, non-believers are capable of speaking truth and doing good works even if some of their even if their conclusions about God are incorrect. The common this now it's important to notice that this common grace is different than salvific grace, right? Which is the source of salvation. Um, and that salvation, we believe, only comes through Christ. If we look at John 14, 6, uh, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And we believe that to be true. But I want to give you an example. Um, I want to present you with an example of our Muslim neighbors standing for virtue and truth. And I hope this isn't the first example of this that you've received because it happens uh, uh, quite a lot. But I do want to I do want to present you with that example within the context of politics, of social issues, of protest and advocacy. OK, now we've been talking about this quite for quite some time. As you know, it is Pride Month. And I think we've done a pretty good job to say while we disagree with what Pride Month stands for, we have tried to be charitable. We have tried to be fair. We have tried, uh, and I think successfully, to show love to people who we may not disagree with, but who we will advocate to make sure that they're treated fairly, that they're given their rights, and that they're not bullied and things of that nature. And we're serious about that. But even within that uh, compassion, within that care, within that charity, we also have to be truthful. And we try to do that, too. And that's not always in modernity an easy uh, a balance to, to, to maintain. Uh, but it's something that we believe Christians must do. Now, from my perspective, with each Pride Month, with each year that comes along, some in the LGBTQ community, not all, but some of them go a couple steps further or maybe even a couple miles further in pushing certain unbiblical and, and really generally inappropriate content and behavior into the public square for all to see, including for children to see. This is something that I think has been frustrating for a lot of people for a long time, people who are trying to find ways to maybe correct their behavior, uh, be more compassionate, uh, embrace uh, some of their neighbors uh, as we should. Um, but they see this issue going further and further and further, and they see how it seems to be at sometimes targeted towards uh, children. So I understand that frustration and, and share it in, in some ways. At long last, though, it seems more and more groups are starting to push back on what's happening. For a while, I think cancel culture and probably the sins of the moral majority made groups outside of white conservatives hesitant to engage. We'll just put it that way. But from what I can tell, from what I'm watching and from what I observe, the seal is broken. 
other communities who don't normally speak into what we can call culture war issues or culture, culture war topics are saying, really, enough is enough. Uh, we've tried to be nice. Uh, we've tried and have been and maintain uh, 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 kind of being pluralistic, being democratic, being tolerant. We tried to compromise, but Pride Month, transgender ideology, et cetera, are simply going too far. And again, it's not about the people. It's about the movement and what's coming along with that. And yes, there's an understanding that there may be some authoritarian threats on the right. But I think a lot of people are starting to see that parts of this movement seem very authoritarian itself. And when I say authoritarian, what I mean is it's not going through the democratic process. It's coming down to uh, the people without really being part of the public discourse. And so a lot of people are saying, look, we gave an inch coming from the right place, but you took a mile. You're taking our kindness for weakness. And now you made the, and this is really, I think, the straw that broke the camel's back for a lot of people. Now you brought our kids into this conversation. And now at times it seems that our kids are targeted in this conversation and with this content and with this behavior. It's over with. It's something that we have to address. And I don't know if you've been watching it. If you listen to my uh, civic updates on uh, Instagram, then you've seen it. But some Muslim communities uh, are have been advocating. In fact, one particular Muslim community advocated for the removal of pride flags from public buildings. And I don't know that any movement's flag should ever be on a public building. So that's even movements I support. You know that I don't think the Ann campaign's flag should be on a public building. I don't think Black Lives Matter's flag should be on a public building. That's not what public buildings are for in pluralistic societies, because these are movements and you can show people respect without necessarily putting their flag up. So I'll call kind of the white house out for that too. I don't, I don't think that's necessary, but some Muslim communities have actually stood up and say, stop. Some of them have stood up and said, we need to remove this sexually explicit material from schools. Right. Um, and, and really when you say that, that shouldn't even be about heterosexuality or homosexuality. It should just be about age appropriateness. But for some reason, there are some people on the left who are pushing this material into schools, which I don't think is defensible, but I guess we're supposed to think they're doing it for our good. We're just supposed to accept that they're doing it for the right reasons, even though it doesn't make any sense. And it's very clear that it's indecent and inappropriate. Now, we don't usually do a lot of audio, uh, outside audio or video uh, on the Church Politics Podcast, but I, I want you to listen to this Muslim mother from Coalition Virtue as she addresses a Maryland school board about opting their children out of celebrating or normalizing LGBTQ views that contradict the tenets of Islam. Take a moment to listen to what she has to say. I think she makes some really good points. Bismillah. Good afternoon. I'm Samir Munshi. I work with the Coalition of Virtue, a Muslim-led nonprofit based here in Maryland, and I want to address the board on the issue of opt-out. I firstly want to acknowledge, like Sister Hussein did, that today is the day of Arafah. It's the holiest day of the year for Muslims, and many of us are fasting, yet we came out to stand in the rain and to voice our concerns because for us this is genuinely an issue of faith, not hate. And we reject the implication that acting on our faith's principles is a willful means of harming others. 
In fact, we see it as a point of bigotry that some only care for our community and will only protect our rights when we assimilate to their way of life and ways of thinking. Just like it's a point of bigotry when some refuse our women's right to wear hijab and to pray, condemning us for our views on this issue is in, in itself another act of bigotry like the ones Muslims and immigrants have faced in this country for years. The same religion that causes Muslims to care about environmental justice, food insecurity, or ending anti-black racism is the same religion that causes us to care about this issue. Our faith is not partisan, and our people are not backwards. Part of the American dream of our people is that they pass on their values to their children. But members of this school board have mocked our values and have said we cannot be allowed to opt our children out precisely because they want to end that dream. Our constitutional right to religious freedom and to raise our children precisely protects that dream. Many of our families don't have much of a choice whether to place their children in this public setting. So we ask that we at least have a choice uh, for our children not to be forced to participate in celebrating or normalizing views that contradict our religion. These children will learn about same-sex couples and trans-identifying people, whether, they're whether they learn these things in school or not. And the conversations that they will have with these members of our community will serve as education on these matters later in their lives. But we're asking that our children not be strong-armed at such a young age into believing certain ideas about gender and sexuality, or that the school system insists on turning our children against the religious values that we hold. Thank you. All I can say is woe. She called her advocacy. Let's look at some of the quotes. That, let's look at some of the things that she said. She called her advocacy an issue of faith, not hate. She said the same religion that causes her to care about anti-black racism is the same religion that causes her to care about this issue. She said that her faith is not partisan and her people are not backwards. There are some Christians that need to hear that. Your faith is not partisan or shouldn't be partisan either. And I think that she said this. I think she had to say that her faith wasn't partisan because some people were accusing her or accusing the Muslim community of selling out to Republicans because they were advocating for their beliefs, which just, which just happened to contradict secular progressive tenets. Some people can't understand anything outside of the white progressive and conservative binary. And I'm going to get into that a little bit more later, too. But here's the big quote that I really pulled out of what she said, and I think she hit it on the head, and I think what she said applies to my community as well. She said, some people only care about our community and will only protect our rights when we assimilate to their way of life and to their ways of thinking. I, I, I got to pause on that one and just, just let you think about it for a while. Let, let me repeat it first, though. She said that some people only care about our community uh, and will only protect our rights when we assimilate to their way of life and their ways of thinking. As a black man in America who is neither fully progressive or conservative, I completely understand where she's coming from. She rightly called this out, and it happens on the right too, by the way, but she rightly called this out as bigotry on the left. Bigotry on some of our school boards, 
bigotry in some of our legislatures and bigotry in some of our institutions of higher learning. Now, we know that there are some, some, some sincere people on the left. That's not what this is about. I know them. I care about them. I appreciate them greatly and have done work with them, plan on doing work with them in the future. But we do need to, to dig into the point that this lady is making right here, because it's a very important point that I think a lot of people miss, including some folks in my community. If you think bigotry only comes from the right, then you are quite naive or merely, you know, just uninformed. The left is great at supporting and flattering certain minority groups on their terms and for their purposes. But let that same group, and I know this from experience, my friends, let that, and so does Chris, by the way, but let that same group voice a value or a thought or an opinion that doesn't fit secular progressive orthodoxy And many of them will completely flip the script immediately. I've seen too many situations where folks on the left who you thought were cool with you, who you thought supported black culture, will disrespect you worse than some folks on the right will disrespect you when you disagree with them because they have this feeling that you have to disagree, that you have to agree with them all the time. And you're like, wait, I thought you appreciated black culture. I thought you had uh, this agape love for our culture and our people. What happened to that? Well, I'll tell you what happened to it. Some people only, some people on the left only love us when they can use us to virtue signal against conservatives or when they can use us uh, and use our political and social capital for their agenda. It's a love, quote unquote, that is conditioned on political and ideological things. A very shallow love, if we if we can even call it that. I found that a lot of anti-racist, intersectional, Black Lives Matter sign in the yard, white progressives, only appreciate black people who agree with them and are bewildered and disgusted by those who have the audacity to disagree with them on certain issues. I I mean, at, at first I used to be surprised by it, but then I was like, whoa, this is just, this is just how it is. And I think for some, and again, this is not everybody, we're, 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 this is broad, but I think it fits a lot of folks who are in power in progressive spaces. The savior complex can't handle anything but eternal gratitude from those they believe they saved. Maybe I'll say that again. The savior complex that you see in a lot of progressives cannot handle anything but eternal gratitude from those they believe they saved. And because maybe they agreed on an issue here or there uh, with the Muslim community, they feel like the Muslim community has to agree with them on everything. And if they don't, something different comes out. 
It's not that nice, smiling, welcome here, we love everybody progressive that we're always told about. And again, this happens on the right as well. If they can't, you know, they they love you, but if sometimes they can't use you for what they want to use you for, you're not going to say everything they want you to say, then they might act a little bit differently. It's almost like, how could you? I, I use my privilege to fight off those terrible conservatives that one time for you, and now you're being so ungrateful. These issues are really, I mean, when you talk about a realignment in politics, when you talk about certain groups being a little more flexible in how they vote and what they advocate for, this specific issue is bringing that to bear. And I'm, I'm, I'm glad to see uh, the Muslim community step up and say, hey, we think differently and you got to hear us out because you're not going to play with our children. You're not just going to do what you want to do and think you know best for our children. If I say I, I don't want them to be a part of this or that, then you need to listen to me. And if I say I don't want the pride flag up on public buildings, then you need to hear that out and you need to have some respect for it. It's, in, it's an interesting conversation. We will continue it and be right back on the Church Politics Podcast. <laughs> Are you too progressive for conservatives and too conservative for progressives? As a Christian, do you find yourself feeling politically homeless? If so, then you're not alone. Listen, this is Justin Gibney, president of the Ann Campaign. And if you're a Christian who doesn't know a whole lot about politics or someone who knows a good deal about politics but wants to be more faithful in the public square, then you have to read the Ann Campaign's book, Compassion and Conviction. The Ann Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement that we publish with InterVarsity Press. Whether you just want to understand the relationship between church and state, why Christians should engage politics at all, how Christians should engage partisanship, politics and race, advocacy and protest, or even civility, this is the book for you. It's very much Bible-centered. It's Bible study and small group friendly. There are questions and exercises after every chapter that give you a framework for engaging politics in a biblical way. So if you want to do it in a better way, get our book, Compassion and Conviction, The End Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement. And we are back on the Church Politics Podcast with Justin Gibney and the right reverend, Christopher Butler. Okay, y'all know that Chris is not here, but hopefully many of you are still with me. Hopefully many of you are finding this conversation to be interesting or enraging. Whatever it is, you are still here. But I want to continue the conversation about the Muslim community and their disagreements with some folks in the LGBTQ community and how they're standing up to make their voices heard. This is what democracy is about. I don't know why anybody might think different, but there was an article in The Guardian uh, that they published about the reaction of some on the left to this new advocacy in the Muslim community. And, and it says this. It says that in 2015, many liberal res uh, residents of Hamtramck, uh, Michigan, celebrated as their city attracted international attention for becoming the first United, the first in the United States to elect a Muslim majority city council. 
They viewed the power shift and diversity as a symbolic but meaningful rebuke of the Islamophobic rhetoric that was a central theme of then Republican presidential candidate Donald Trump's campaign. This week, many of those same residents watched in dismay as a now fully Muslim and socially conservative city council passed legislation banning pride flags from being flown on uh, on city on city property uh, that had, like many others, been flown around the country and, and was intended uh, to celebrate the LGBTQ plus community. Um, and one person said, and this, I guess, was the former mayor who was Karen Maju, uh, Majewski. She said this in response to uh, this advocacy and, and actually taking the, the the pride flag down off the um, public buildings. She said this. She said, there is a sense of betrayal. We support you when you were threatened and now our rights are threatened and you're the one doing the threatening. So the first thing I want to say about this is. This is about a flag and the symbolism of that and where that flag should be. I don't I, I don't see anything as far as what I've read that they're trying to take anybody's rights away or that anybody's rights are threatened. Based on this issue. So I, th- I think that's a little bit of an overstatement. But when you say there's a sense of betrayal. That's an interesting statement to me. It, it says a lot. Um, has this Muslim community pledged their allegiance to the progressive agenda? To feel a sense of betrayal on this matter, in my opinion, is the show a serious sense of entitlement. What makes you think that these people can't have an opinion that differs from yours? Do you really think that everyone must follow your lead and abide by your agenda? Why, If you educated yourself on Islam at all, you would know that they have some socially conservative perspectives. Why is that offensive to you? And even if it is offensive, why do you feel betrayed? Is this some type of political indentured servitude? Is that what they're in? You, you you help them at one point and now they have to do everything that you say they should do. You supported them coming into office. Therefore, they do what you tell them to do now or they can never disagree with you on serious issues now. And it makes one wonder if you respect others as people. Or do you just want some sort of political mercenaries that, again, you can use their social and political capital against your culture war enemies? And and really, I think what that quote exposes is the typical culture war thinking. And the typical culture war thinking, which unfortunately some in my community have bought into as well, is choose a side. Either you're with us or you're with them. And even if some of our values are completely outside of what you agree with religiously or what your your theological uh, um, uh, understandings tell you, you got to choose one side or the other. But what I think a lot of folks that are engaged in this culture war, a lot of folks who are white progressives and white conservatives have to understand the politics of other groups aren't necessarily limited to the framework drawn by the culture war. 
Not everybody subscribes to the progressive versus conservative binary and abides by that and 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 creates their politics based off that foundation. That's not how everybody thinks of their values and their politics. And some people put their religion, which may not fit on either side, above all of that. And I guess that's hard to understand when progressivism or conservatism has become your religion. We, we have to do better. The idea that you feel betrayed because somebody wouldn't put a movement flag, would remove a movement flag from a public building. Even if, again, even if the end campaign had a flag, I would probably ask people not to put it up. But even if we had a flag, I would not think it deserves to go up on a public building. That doesn't mean I don't love you as a person. That doesn't mean I won't fight for your rights as a person. That means it's inappropriate. And I think it was inappropriate when the, the White House did it. But this whole thing about we feel betrayed, the only way you feel betrayed is if I don't have control of my own voice. And once we've done something together or worked on something together, or once you've supported me, I have to now go along with you on everything. Why would that ever be an assumption? Because even within progressivism or conservatism, you have groups that agree on some things and work together on those things and don't agree on other things and don't work together on those things. And nobody should feel betrayed because we're in different communities and nobody said we were going to agree on everything. And this doesn't concern your rights in the way that they're taking away your rights. No, they're taking away a symbol that was probably inappropriate for the context. But to feel like you've been betrayed, I think, is a lot. I think folks need to think about the implications of that statement. I feel betrayed by another group of people with different values because they disagreed with me on something. I think that says a lot about some of our perspectives and the control we think we have over what other people's do, uh, what other people do, or the idea that, you know, just not understand the idea that people work from different frameworks. And that everybody, if you respect somebody, see, and that's the thing, that's what this in many ways comes down to. If you respect somebody, you don't just respect them when they agree with you. You don't just say that you care about them or that you'll help them out when they agree with you. If you truly respect somebody, you respect them when they don't don't disagree, when they disagree with you. You, you respect them when they say, hold up, I'm, I'm not on the same page as you here. Because that's the only time when it matters. If you just... Uh, uh, if somebody agrees with you all the time and just goes along with you, you don't know whether you respect them or not until it comes into conflict. And here it comes into conflict and now people feel betrayed, but that just says what kind of expectations you had, um, that this group would just kind of go along with you. Uh, and it also says that you don't know all that much about that group and their values as well. So, you know, I think that this should serve as an inspiration uh, and really an encouragement, hopefully for people in my community and others to push back, not against the people. Right. Like so. So this conversation about pride and transgender ideology is not about pushing back against the people or hurting the people. But I think there are some excesses in the movement that need to be pushed back against. And there are excesses in a lot of movements that need to be pushed back against. Right. Um, but I'm glad 
that a group who might not have been expected to do this, although their their values would tell you that they might push back. I'm glad they're stepping up to do that. And let me say this to, to Christians who are standing on the sidelines of, of this issue, um, whether because they just don't want to get canceled or whether be or whether it's because, you know, they're they're just in a different place ideologically. If we can't summon the courage to push back against this, then what will we summon the courage to push back against that our ideological tribe doesn't agree with? Or worse, if we're so ideologically progressive that we can't even see the problem with books telling preteens how to give oral sex, then are we really, is Christianity really what's leading our thought process, what's controlling our opinions, or is there something else that's really in control of that? Because these are serious issues concerning children, and a lot of folks are standing around, looking around, waiting for somebody else to do something, or afraid to do something, because they just don't have the boldness and courage that we're told to have. Or because it might get in the way of some type of selfish ambition and we don't want to be called out we don't want an opportunity to be to be taken away from us we're talking about children we're talking about the foundation of our identities in some ways outside of christ you know our human identities who we are has a lot to do with our gender whether we're male or female and how and what that means and how we're to interact it doesn't mean everything but it is a big part of who we are. And so we need to think about why we are hesitant if we are. And if we're willing to really get engaged on an issue that we see some other communities now speaking into, but too many in our, and and, and here's the other thing about that. It's refreshing to see a different community because we know sometimes the far right speaks into this in a very terrible way. And we're sick of that happening. So we should welcome other groups coming in to say uh, say something, but we also shouldn't leave it to them to be the only ones to say something. And some people do handle it well. It's not everybody. But we know that there's some folks on the right that is really embarrassing how they handle these issues because there's just a lack of compassion. There's a lack of care and concern for people in the LGBTQ community. So it's good to see uh, a different group who may address it with different messengers and a different message and from a different point of view say something about this. But you can't just leave it to them. You don't just leave others to take the hit when you really need to get out there and say something yourself. So we will be I will be right back on the Church Politics Podcast. I am back on the Church Politics Podcast. I'm, I'm a creature of habit. I can't stop saying that. But it's me, Justin Gibney, Chris, or the right reverend. Uh, the right reverend Butler is not here today. Uh, but I thank all of you that stuck with me and and, and just uh, humored me today and, and stuck it out. So I greatly appreciate that. But we are on to the next subject, which is a pretty frustrating subject for me, I will be honest. Uh, let me know what you think. The United States Department of Agriculture has given two companies approval to sell chicken grown from cells in a lab. This this is uh, according to 
uh, an article in the Smithsonian Magazine. Let me say that again, because I don't, I don't know if that scares you, but it really scares me. The United States Department of Agriculture, the USDA, has given two companies approval to sell chicken grown from cells in a lab. Um, the article goes on to say that lab grown or cell cultivated meat is made by feeding a mix of nutrients to animal cells, not animals, animal cells in stainless steel tanks writes Vox, uh, Kenny Torella. Uh, companies hope the product can be an alternative to meat produced by killing animals, which has a large carbon footprint. The news coming out of the U.S. is an exciting development for the entire cellular agriculture ecosystem. Um, some see it, uh, you know, the CEO of Mosa Meats, a Dutch cultured meat company, uh, tells Aaron Baker, this is what he said, with regulators in Asia and North America signaling that cultivating meat is a safe alternative to slaughtering animals, policymakers worldwide will be jumping into action as uh, not to miss out on the huge economic and environmental opportunity presented by uh, cellular agriculture. Uh, the idea is that we won't have to slaughter animals and we won't have to take up so much space on Earth and get these large carbon footprints if we don't actually eat animals we eat meat grown in a lab no no and i'm gonna be straight up here and i don't want to i don't want to be too uh i want to be charitable i want i don't want to be too negative here but the, honestly the usda is one of the federal agencies that I have the least trust in right now. I, I I don't know about you, but I often feel like nobody is really paying enough attention or cares enough about what they put in our food. And when stuff like this happens, we know, we feel that there's going to be some unintended consequences that 10 years down the road, 20 years down the road. Oh, yeah, it gives you cancer. It gives you this. It gives you that. No. Um, the whole idea of policymakers worldwide jumping into action so they don't miss out on this environment. We need policymakers that are going to push back in all, on all the chemicals and all the stuff they put into our food. Look, I care about the environment. I understand people who have issues with other folks eating meat. Guess what? This is a pluralistic society. This is a democracy. If people want to eat meat, they get to eat meat. And I think one of the worst things that could happen, and I hope, you know, with. Oh, man, you know how they you know how the when this when this happens and when they start serving this, I really hope people know what they're serving. And I hope and my fear is that you'll be eating this stuff and not even know you're eating it. And the problem that I have, once again, is we have people in certain spaces that feel like they know what's best for everybody else. And they start forcing this stuff on us, unbeknownst to us, because many of us are just working and going on with life. We don't have a whole lot of time to know exactly what's going on with this stuff. And we have to we're eating it and taking it in. We don't even know it. Fact of the matter is, the reality is, some people like to eat meat. 
Does that mean we can treat the animals any kind of way? No, but guess what? Until you have a referendum or something where most people are saying that that should be outlawed, people get to eat meat. And most people aren't, well, I hope, I don't want to say that yet. It's probably too premature. But a lot of people I know are not trying to eat stuff grown in a lab. So I want y'all, even when they start marketing this, even when they start saying that it's healthier, you know, that that's how it goes. They'll start saying that it's healthier than regular meat. And there'll be all, you know, this huge marketing campaign. Sometimes you just have to say no. And even for my vegans and vegetarians in the audience, man, some people just have a, a difference of opinion. But please don't just start feeding us, uh, you know, cloned meat. Like somebody, please speak up. And this is what I... You know, is there anybody who what politicians are out there that are saying no, that will just say no, stop. I don't care how much uh, lobbying money you have. This is wrong. This is going in the wrong direction. This is definitely going to have some side effects. Just stop. You can't force everybody not to eat meat. Just chill. Um. So I don't know, man, I, I, I hope. You know, this this in this 2024 election that this is an issue that people talk about, because I know when especially when it comes to my kids, what's in their food matters. And it just doesn't seem like we have control. It just doesn't seem like folks in the USDA. And I know there's some good people that work for the USDA. So let me say that it's not everybody, but it doesn't seem like the leadership there in many instances always has our best interest in mind. It doesn't seem like this stuff is really being run through the public square. It just happens and we just have to react. And five years later, you you hear they okayed something in the food that wasn't, that they shouldn't have. So I hope it's something that, because this is a very practical issue that I think presidential candidates and Senate candidates and so on should address. And, you know, we talked, I think we talked about him last week or the week before, uh, RFK Jr., has specifically talked about this. I would hope that the rest, everybody else would specifically talk about that as well. But that is something that I said, okay, we need to talk about this dude a little bit, even with the disagreements that we may have uh, on some of the vaccine stuff or whatever. That's that. Those are the kind of things that draw people in somebody who's really committed and who you really think will do what it takes to make sure that the standards are a little higher, man, because in this country, it seems sometimes we have such an addiction to increasing profits and being efficient that health and everything else just goes out the window or very least becomes secondary we need people who are going to stand up even for things that seem small but this is a big move i think folks are going to they're going to try to have marketing campaigns to make it seem normal or they're just going to try to do it without us really knowing i hope that doesn't happen and and i don't and i don't know that's going to happen but i worry that that'll be the case. Let me say that in a different way, because I don't want to start a conspiracy. But I do want to say I worry that this is just going to be kind of forced upon us and we may not know. And we need leaders who will push back against that. I think that's a better way to say it. Um, but I hope you all enjoyed this episode. I appreciate everybody who stuck with me. Uh, thank you for uh, joining us today. I hope you learned something. Uh, there's some conversations that need to be had. Shout out to, you know, our neighbors in the Muslim community that are stepping up. Uh, and doing it in a positive way. But you know what it is, Ann Camp. There's a cross that neither political conservatism nor progressivism is fit to bear. There's a civic hearing in need of faithful witnesses who love social justice and won't surrender the truth to be loved by the world. Politic with the boldness and compassion of Jesus Christ. Until next time, Ann Camp. Well, I'll let you.
This episode was brought to you in part by the Areopagus Podcast, two clergy of different traditions. Father Andrew Stephen Damick and Michael Landsman discuss encounters of historic Christianity with other religious traditions. How do we engage with those who believe differently? Listen wherever you get your podcasts.